the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Joshua. Praise to the God who reigns above. God had given the Israelites victories over the Canaanites. He kept his promises. The land was to be divided among the ten tribes left that hadn't received their land yet. In chapter 15, we saw the distribution allotted to the tribe of Judah. We join Pastor Will in Joshua chapter 16, verse 1. The whole theme of the book of Joshua is victory in Jesus. It teaches us how to live the Christian life victoriously, the life that Christ purchased for us on the cross that is ours by faith. And so we've been learning throughout the book of Joshua those keys to living that victorious Christian life. And the last one we learned was resting in Christ's finished work on the cross. And from chapter 13 to the end of the book of Joshua, it teaches us how to do that, how to rest in God's victory. And so we've learned so far that first we need to let God choose our lot. We need to not fight with God about what he's chosen for us. We need to let him choose the land we're going to dwell in. Let him choose the life that he wants for us. We need to let him choose our lot. Second, we learned that we needed, like Caleb, to live in light of God's promises, to never let them go, to never try to figure out things on our own, but to live in light of God's promises. Thirdly, we need to mix God's promises with faith. And so tonight we're going to see how these tribes refuse to expend their energy on entering into the rest that God already won for them because they thought they could find a better rest on their own. They didn't mix the word that God promised them with faith, and as a result, they went off trying to do their own thing. And so the goal of tonight's study is let's not repeat their mistake, but instead, let's trust God and expend our energy into entering into all the beautiful rest that Jesus won for us on the cross. Joshua chapter 16, we begin in verse 1. And it says, And the lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan by Jericho unto the water of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel. And it goes out from Bethel to Luz and passes along according to the borders of Arki to Ataroth. And it goes down westward to the coast of Japhleti unto the coast of Beth Horon the nether and to Gezer. And the goings out thereof are at the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, those were the children of Joseph, they took their inheritance. As we look at this here, the section of land that's described here, it starts off by explaining that Joseph's lot. And you might be thinking to yourself, wait a second, Pastor. Well, I thought that Joseph didn't get a lot. That's probably not the best way to phrase that. It's not that Joseph didn't get a lot. It's that he got two lots. He got two portions. He got a double portion because the blessing was given by Jacob to him. So as a result, the way that he got the double portion was each of his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph likely had more sons than that, but those two sons in particular were elevated to brother status. So they had equal status with Judah and Simeon and Reuben and everybody else. And so they were considered their own tribe, even though they were not part of the original 12. 
The lot, therefore, was chosen for both of them in one pick. And then it's going to give us the section of land that they got. The land we're about to describe now is this big chunk of land here. Remember, half the tribe of Manasseh settled on the other side, Jordan. And that's what they got. So this is half of Manasseh here, and then the whole tribe of Ephraim here. You might be thinking, man, Manasseh hit the lottery. They got the biggest land out of everybody, and it's because they were a very large tribe. God told them that it would be distributed based upon their numbers. Here we see the borders of it. It says, the lot of the, from the children of Joseph, it fell, or it went forward from Jordan. So we're going to start Jordan by Jericho, and that's our starting point for these borders. Unto the water of Jericho on the east side, to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel. So what we're going to begin doing is we're going to begin moving this way toward Bethel right there. So it starts here and it goes that way. That's what it says there in verse 1. Then verse 2, it goes out from Bethel to Luz and it passes along unto the borders of Arki to Adaroth. So we're just moving further west as we move here. We're going to eventually get over here to Gezer, and then we're going to take a route, a little turn up to the sea. Verse 3, and it goes down westward to the coast of Japhleti, under the coast of Beth Horon the Never, unto Gezer. And then the goings out thereof are at the sea. So it goes from there, and we, then we just go straight up to the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, took their inheritance. This is their southern border that we're given right here, and then it's just going to go up north from there. Now, a couple of things that I think are interesting to point out. When it says Arki in verse 2, and then it says Japhleti in verse 3, it actually means the land of the Arklight and the land of the Japhlite. That's interesting because it means these aren't just places. It means that these are non-Israeli people groups that are still there. And that's fascinating to me because later on we learn that David's counselor, Hushai, was an Arklite. Apparently, Rahab and the people of Gibeon were not the only Canaanites to repent and ask God for mercy. We don't have any record of this, but there is no critique given of the Arklites and the Japhletites, yet every other people group that Israel lives up, they get critiqued for. So whoever these people were, however they talked to Joshua about it, they repented and sought mercy from God. I bring this up because people all the time, they say, how could God wipe out all these people? God tried everything in his power not to wipe them out. We sing that song, Is He Worthy, right? Who is worthy to break the seal and to open the scroll? Those scrolls, as he opens those seals, those are judgments upon a Christ-rejecting world. So what does God do to try to get their attention? He tells everyone beforehand what's going to happen. So much so that people make movies about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's not like we've never heard of these things before. So when this stuff starts happening to the point where the sky rolls back as a scroll and people can see into heaven and know where the judgment's coming from, what else is God supposed to do, (laughs) right? God did not just arbitrarily wipe these people out. He gave them ample opportunity to repent and they refused. They fought God tooth and nail to the bitter lost end. And that's what people will do during the tribulation period in the book of Revelation. They will fight him, shake their fist at him, even though they know the judgment's coming upon them because they reject him. It's not God's fault. God will show mercy to anyone who will humble themselves. These people groups, they were not just spared by God, but many of them were given favor later on in Israel's history. Now, as I said earlier, these verses, they list the southern border of their lot, not any other borders. The other boundaries are given by tribe once we reach verse 5. So first off, we're going to deal with the tribe 
of Ephraim in the land that they got. So verse 5, and the border, we're going to get the general borders here. The border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. Even the border of their inheritance on the east side was Adaroth Adar unto Beth Horon the upper. Again, this is that southern section here. We don't start at Jericho where we did before, but Adaroth Adar, they don't know where it was. But, and then we're going to go from there to Beth Horon. Just moving along the same boundary we already covered. And then verse 6, the border went out toward the sea to Mikmetah on the north side. Mikmetah is a town that's southeast of Shechem, which is right here. We get the southern border here. It goes out to the sea. It actually goes all the way over here. And then we're going to go back to the sea again. So it says here that this border went out toward the sea to Machmetha on the north side. The border then went about eastward. And so it mentions Tanath Shiloh and it passed by it on the east to Janoha. And then it went down from Janoha to Adaroth and to Neerath. I don't bring these up because many people don't know where these things are. And then it came to Jericho and went out to Jordan. Verse 8, the border went from Tapua westward. That's how we know we're moving this way now. Unto the river Cana and the goings out thereof were at the sea. So it goes all the way right out to here by the sea. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim by their families. Not a whole lot of detail here for Ephraim, but it mentions in verses 9 and 10, these were the cities that were given to Ephraim. It says, and the separate cities for the children of Israel were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they might be saying, what do you mean separate cities? The word separate means outskirts. So the outskirts, there were certain outskirt cities that were given to Ephraim that were technically in Manasseh's land. Any cities that were close to these borders with Manasseh here, any cities that were close there, but technically in Manasseh's lot, were actually given to Ephraim. No reason is given, but we will end up addressing probably why by the end of our study. Verse 10, it mentions, and not only did they get these extra cities, but and it says they did not drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer down here. Apparently, these guys were still holding out. And they did not drive them out, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites unto this day and serve under tribute. Remember, Joshua, he's writing this probably about 15 years after this happens. And he's lamenting as he tells us, he's telling us what land was given to them. He goes, I'm 120 years old and they still haven't dealt with these turkeys yet. He's lamenting the fact that not only have they not dealt with them, the Gezerites, but they made them serve under tribute. The word there means to become forced laborers. So in other words, they made a deal with them and they said, we'll let you live if you become our free labor, our slave labor. And they agreed. You might be thinking, well, how can Joshua criticize that deal? Isn't that the same deal that Joshua made with the Gibeonites? Didn't they become Israel's lowest workers in society? No, it's not the same deal at all. See, the Gibeonites came to Joshua under the premise of fearing God. They came to Joshua saying, we've heard about your God, and we've heard that no one can stand in his path. And even though they lied about where they came from, they came under the premise, at least, of fearing God, which meant that Joshua could make a deal with them. While they did deceive Joshua, it was because they feared God. And after following the Lord under Joshua's leadership, they became a people who truly repented and were faithful, not just to God, but to Israel. In fact, later on in the story of, of Israel's history, when Saul is killed by the Philistines, him and his sons, the Philistines take their bodies and they hang them out there for all to see by the city, of the, I think, of Jabesh Gilead. I'm not sure exactly. No, it's, it was near there. And guess who the people were that came and took those bodies down and gave them a proper burial? It was the Gibeonites. 
the Gibeonites. These guys became, even though they were Canaanites, they were truly repentant. These Canaanites in Gezer, they were unrepentant Canaanites. And that was what God forbade. God forbade to make a deal with Canaanites who would not turn to God. For Israel to make a deal with them without them first turning to God. And the reason that God forbade that was because in doing so, they just continued in their sin and eventually pulled Israel's heart away from God too. And guess what? That's what happened. It's exactly what happened. This is why God gave Israel the command to wipe out the unrepentant Canaanites. And that whole ugly experience, that tragic, difficult experience for Israel to bring about judgment upon these unrepentant people groups, it serves as a symbol for us of why we must have a zero-tolerance policy towards sin. People say, well, yeah, Pastor Will, but isn't it all of grace? Yes, it is. It's all of grace. God is gracious. we all be dead if that wasn't the case. But grace is never a license to sin. Never. It's funny, when uh, Mormons come to the house and they, they learn I'm a pastor, they usually treat me a little bit differently. They kind of read me the riot act. And they'll say, so you, you believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Now, if you're just coming to your house... They try to pretend they believe that. They will tell you, no, we only believe in salvation by grace alone. It's just that that's after all you can do. But I I remember I had one Mormon elder. He was in my face pointing at me, yelling at me in my house and saying, oh, I bet you have just the largest church in the whole wide world, just telling everybody they could sin as much as they want. And I'm like, could you just visit one Sunday, please? You're assuming a lot, a whole lot. Grace is never a license to sin. You don't have to pick one or the other. You don't have to say, well, if it's grace, then it means we can do whatever we want. And because that sounds offensive to some people, they go, well, then it means we need to do the law. We need to do works. No, grace is a freedom. It's a gracious, unmerited favor from God that frees us not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power and eventually the presence of sin as well. No, I don't deserve any of that. Like, I don't come to God and go, you know, God, I've read my Bible three times this week, so I'm expecting some sanctification to go on here. You kind of owe me some sanctification here. Like, that's not how Christianity works. When I come to God crying out and saying, Lord, I need to be a better dad, I need a better husband, better pastor, better Christian, better witness, whatever it might be, I do it because I say, God, I need your help. I don't deserve that help, but I need it. I desperately need it. I need your grace in my life. That is exactly how it's supposed to be. That's not a license to sin nor is it some guilt trip of works. Salvation is all of grace. Grace is never licensed to sin. See, when we tolerate sin in our lives, when we have a tolerance policy towards sin in our lives, where we say, well, you know, it's just a little thing. Sometimes people see me with my kids, like, man, Pastor Will, you're harsh. And I'm like, I have a zero tolerance policy. Why? Okay, I'm gonna give some parenting advice here. Take it or leave it. I don't ever do like the whole count to five or count to three thing with the kids. Do you wanna know why? Never have, never will. Because I don't want them to think that the reason they obey is because a consequence is coming soon. I want their obedience to be from here. And so there is no one. It's discipline. The moment they cross the boundary. And you say, well, that's harsh, Pastor Will. No, I'm teaching them. Because someday, and this is what I explained to them. Every one of my kids has heard this speech a thousand times. Someday, daddy's not going to be around to enforce your behavior. Someday, the only thing you're going to have is you and your conscience with God. And I don't want you to grow up to be a fool. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of correction is what drives it from, drives that foolishness out of their heart. And so correction, I don't do the one, two, three. It's zero, zero tolerance. Now, does that mean that I don't exercise grace? Oh man, there's many times to the point where every once in a while, you know, the kids will come, dad, can I get grace? (laughs) 
there are times I'll even look at them sometimes. I'll look at them and I go, I'm showing you mercy this time. I don't know why, but I am. <laughs> because God is just merciful with us and I need a lot of mercy. So I'm going to show you mercy this time. But you need to understand that it's mercy. It's not because, well, I'm giving you some leeway to push the boundary further. And here's the crazy thing. When I give them mercy and they take advantage of it, guess what? There's not a lot of mercy for a while because it means they didn't understand why I gave them mercy. God has a zero tolerance policy with sin. Like God never looks at me and he says, Will, you were rude to your wife today, but everybody sins. So I just won't worry about that. No. And you know what? If I come to the Lord and the Lord says, Will, we need to talk about this and go, oh, Lord, it's just a struggle for me and stuff. Yeah, I know. That's why I want to talk to you about it. Yeah, but I'd really like to talk to you about, you know, we have this financial need. Or we, and the Lord says, no. I have never, ever had the Lord want to deal with me with something and me ignore him and try to move on to something else. And the Lord go, okay, we'll move on to something else. Never, never. I mean, he's like a broken record. I can't get away from it. So I'll go to church and the stinking pastor's preaching on it. You know, I'll go to a conference and all those pastors are preaching on it. I'll go call up a friend and oh, he's got some glorious experience in the word of God and it's about my struggle. And every time Jesus is knocking, Will, I want to talk, I want to help, I want to work with you on this. We don't move any further until we deal with that, that thing. It's not that until I fix it or until I'm perfected in that, that's not what I'm saying. But there needs to be a dialogue and conversation where I'm not tolerating it in my life, where I'm not excusing it in my life, where I'm not just going on as if it's no big deal. When we tolerate sin in our lives, when we do that, it will eventually harm us, even if it seems like we currently have it under control. Currently, Ephraim, they've got it under control. They're our slave labor. But later on, the Gezerites become a massive thorn in their side to the point where they put the entire nation at risk when they rise up with the Philistines against the nation. You may have it under control now, or think you do, but it will get you. It will get you in the end. So have a zero tolerance policy with sin. Chapter 17, we now move to the tribe of Manasseh. Please don't be condemned if you do the one, two, three thing. I was just sharing my heart. Chapter 17, verse one. There was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. That is, for Makir, it's telling us who the tribe of Manasseh is. And it tells us some of the families of Manasseh here. We had Makir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. Apparently, his name has something to do with that. Therefore, he had Gilead and Bashan. There was also a lot for the rest of the children of Manasseh by their families, for the children of Abiezer, for the children of Helek, for the children of Asriel, and for the children of Shechem, and for the children of Hefer, and for the children of Shemida. These were the male children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their families. But Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, he didn't have any sons, just daughters. So these are the names of his daughters, Mela and Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. Now, we'll explain what we're getting into here in just a moment. But I want to reiterate here, there was also a lot for the tribe of Manasseh. So while even though half the tribe received their land up here, the other families of Manasseh remained. Now, the tribe that received their family up here, the part of the tribe was this Makir guy, this man of war. And apparently he looked at all Bashan and said, I can hold it, I can take it, I'm a feisty guy, I got it. And so Moses said, you can have it. But there was verse two, also a lot for the rest of his family. And it's this Western lot that is here. It's got this little tiny Florida type little burden here. And then it goes up around that way. Makir had a brother named Jair. He also received land on the east side. But six other families still needed land from the tribe of Manasseh. 
We see them in verse 2. And then a seventh family that had a special situation. The family of Zelophehad. Now we first meet these daughters, Mela, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza, in Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. I'm not going to read it all to you. You can do that on your own time. But we first meet them there because when their father died without having any sons and God explained to the people through Moses how the land distribution would work. They went to Moses personally and said, time out, Moses. What about us? Our father's name is going to go out of existence. He won't get any land if it goes this way because our father had no sons. And so Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, the daughters of Zelophehad have spoken truly. So this is how it will work in Israel, that if a, a man has no sons, then the land will go to his daughter's. It will not go into another tribe's hands. It will go to his daughters. If you don't understand how radical that is during a culture like this back then, that is way, way ahead of its time. Way. Joshua lists here in verse 4 that they came near. So these five daughters who had initially made this petition 30-something years ago, they came near before Eliezer the priest and before Joshua the son of Nun. As these land distributions are being given out to Manasseh on the west side, they came and they said to them, before the princes as well, they said, the Lord commanded, verse 4, Moses to give us an inheritance among our brethren. Therefore, according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brethren of their father. The reason Joshua lists this here, even though we already knew about this, is because it's important for us to know that Israel obeyed what God told them to do with this situation. It was a very common thing to trample women underfoot back then. And given the culture, it would have been very easy for Israel to go with the flow and ignore God's command. But Joshua says they didn't. It must have been interesting for Joshua. And you know, he's getting ready to do the lots, and all of a sudden somebody comes to him and goes, Time out, Joshua! Wait a second, wait a minute, I know you're doing the lots, but green is not the right color for the stage. Like Caleb comes up and goes, no, 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 you can't give out any land yet. Me first. And then, of course, he's doing Manasseh, and the daughter's coming and going, no, 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 wait a minute here. God gave a command. And just like with Caleb, Joshua obeyed. With these ladies, Joshua and the nation of Israel did not ignore God's command. They obeyed. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand, particularly living in our culture. Because culture, whether it's new or old, never is to dictate our Christian behavior. Never. The scriptures dictate our Christian behavior. By the way, that doesn't mean all culture is evil, all right? I don't dance. That's just me. I, I grew up in a Pentecostal environment, and we did not dance or chew or, or date girls that did. Don't dance or chew or date girls that do. That was the rule. Don't play cards, right? No cards. I remember we used to make fun of my pastor because when the computer age dawned around and somebody put solitaire on his computer, I say, hey, uh, pastor, you got solitaire on your computer. He goes, but I don't own a card table. He was a good Pentecostal. Don't own a card table. That holiness idea, the holiness teaching of being separate from the culture. Not all ideas are bad. We didn't dance at, at my wedding because it was just, that's a no-no. And so, you know, I still don't do that at weddings. I think I danced with my, one of my sister-in-laws once. And I, I'll dance with my wife now and slow dance. I'm not out there doing the shake a bake or whatever, you know, and... I don't do any of those things, but like in our culture, a lot of times you get the dancing. The reason that it was kind of not a big thing for the church for a long time is because it tended to be associated with rebellion, basically not clean. It was sensual. But you know, you go to other places like Israel, other places like that, and dancing is nothing like that at all, and it's a big part of the culture. Dancing in and itself, if it, if it doesn't mean everything in a culture is evil, okay? It doesn't mean that. People say, Pastor Will, can we dance at church? And I said, no, in your prayer closet. Didn't David dance? Yes, it was not a church service, it was a parade. Look it up. We do dance at church because the word for dance in Scripture, it just means to move your body. 
And people are doing that all the time, swaying back and forth. You know, some of you do it more than others. Some of you do it really well. Some of you need to stop. I had one time at the previous church I pastored, and I've always pastored a very culturally diverse church. You can always tell when the white people are really clapping because they struggle. And I had one Sunday, and I just stopped in the middle of the song, and I said, white people, you know, look at your Latino friends, and you need to follow them because this is atrocious. <laughs> I'm so distracted, I can't even sing right now. All culture isn't evil. And I, I, think, I think that's hard for us sometimes, because especially if we've grown up understanding things to be a certain way. Um, I was a very proper family in the sense of what we would call traditionally English propriety. We had dinner at a certain time every night. We did things a certain way, and the whole family was there. And da, 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 da. For example, the worst sin I could ever commit is not making my bed in the morning. And I've grown up, I'm still this way. Like I walk into a kid's room, the bed's not made. I don't care if they're eating breakfast. They have, they have failed. And that's just my mindset. Now, I have a wife who grew up differently, much more casual, much more laid back home environment. And so through that, we have merged our cultures together and beds are unmade sometimes. And it's okay. I don't freak out, even though internally I'm struggling. (laughs) Culture in and of itself isn't necessarily good or bad. We derive our understanding of evil and good, of right and wrong from Scripture. Always, always from Scripture. We are to rest in Christ's finished work on the cross. We do this by taking hold of His promises in our life, mixing His word with faith, and to live in light of His word. Right and wrong are derived from His nature, God being the greatest good we can ever have, and everything apart from Him is evil. So when it comes to His word, the best way to live is in accordance to His word, in accordance to his nature. He longs to bless us when we take his word and trust him. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.